Funky Glasses Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Howdy, strangers. It's been a little minute since our last episode, but hey, it's called Set Break for a reason. And we're still on break, actually, but we didn't want to leave you out on a limb, so here's Set Break Part 2. In this episode, we'll consider two official live releases from The Grateful Dead, Skull and Roses, a.k.a. Skullfuck, from October 1971, and the legendary triple album, Europe 72, released the same month the following year. You just heard a little bit of Mr. Charlie from EU72. It's probably my favorite Pigpen sung number, and this episode gives us a chance to celebrate Pig's Last Ride. This is also our first episode since the great Robert Hunter's passing, so we'll take a little time to talk about his immense contributions to the band. Our reality would not be the same without Robert Hunter. We're just glad to have overlapped with his existence on this planet. Rest in peace. There's so much history with Skull and Roses in Europe 72 that it would be impossible to cram it into my opening spiel, so I'm going to do the rare thing and save some for the episode. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a couple of interesting developments on the Osiris media front. Osiris and Nugs.net have partnered to present a unique new series called Jam Just Happened, a monthly live music event in New York City where guitarist Scott Metzger will host a rotating cast of musicians for an improvisational jam session. And after the show, Osiris will release a podcast companion with clips and commentary and Nugs will stream the full audio on their platform. The first event is December 6th at New Blue in New York City, featuring Aaron Magner, Adam Chase, and Jay White. So New York City locals, be sure to grab tickets. You can visit OsirisPod.com jam to get those tickets and see more info about the show. I also wanted to tell you about another new show from Osiris, After Midnight. It tells the story of Fish's groundbreaking festival on the eve of the new millennium, Big Cyrus. I remember when that happened, I was living in Burlington, Vermont. I wasn't a big fish fan at the time. A bandmate of mine was a huge fish fan. He went to the show and also got his hands on some tapes. I heard the tapes, and even as a non-fan, I was pretty blown away. The band also built a city for 80,000 fans in the Everglades, and they capped off the festival by playing for seven hours finally ending sometime during sunrise on January 1st, 2000. So this five-episode series includes interviews with band members Trey Anastasio, John Fishman, fans and crew, and looks back on one of the most unique performances in music history. I'm definitely going to check it out, and you should too, at osirispod.com slash after midnight, and go ahead and subscribe while you're there. 
Oh, and our sister, brother, cousin, great aunt, twice removed podcast, Discologist, has a great conversation with noted dead photographer Jay Blakesburg about his new book, Jerry Garcia, Secret Space of Dreams. And you can check that out at OsirisPod.com slash Discologist. It's episode number 446. And don't you worry, Dead to Me will be back with regularly scheduled episodes very soon. But for now, enjoy Set Break Part 2. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. Oh, guys, here we are. And we got to spend a minute talking about a big loss to the Grateful Dead community with Robert Hunter's passing. He lived a long life. He lived a remarkable life. He lived a soulful life. He lived an accomplished life. I've talked a lot about Robert Hunter on this show, I feel like. Obviously, I'm a huge appreciator of his work. Really love to hear from you guys uh, about what you feel about his life and legacy. Well, the obvious thing about Hunter is that his songs are probably what made you fall in love with the dead in the first place, right? For me, for sure, yeah. And there's just a long line of people who have very strong, personal, highly uh, individualized connections to to this body of work. I mean, I, I know for me, the first songs that really kind of resonated were songs like Broke Down Palace. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about American Beauty recently, but it's just it's just hard to underestimate how how mind boggling it is that, you know, he wrote three definitive songs one afternoon in London. I think what's important, too, is that the rest of the band, because I've always considered him a band member. Oh, for sure. um, Was able to channel that from Hunter. Yeah, they picked up on it and made it a vehicle for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. What has always amazed me is that. They had to go to somebody else and basically reach out to another human. Uh, that's always been like super reassuring for me. I mean, these are real relationships that he had with members of the band in order to sort of write for them at that level of detail and intimacy. It's interesting to be talking about this period of the dead because for me... Is where everything really comes together, and so much of that is because of Hunter's contributions. There was a sweetness and an optimism to Hunter, even where there was sadness. You know, I always think of the song Jack Straw in a weird way as like a dialogue between the dead's two lyrical ids, you know, where one character is like Robert Hunter, who's bemoaning the fact that there ain't a winner in the game who don't go home with all. Yeah. And then I see John Barlow as the guy saying, yep, that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think What Hunter brings to it is his ability to present many different facets of an idea through the power of metaphor and allegory, among other literary devices. But the point is, he was able to tap into some deeper truths Mm -hmm. about the human experience, and not many writers can actually pull that off. It's a short list, you know. Like I think of Bob Dylan, too, and lo and behold, they had a mutual admiration society. Yep, yeah. So before we dive in and really luxuriate in some of these Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia tunes, along with the rest of the emerging songbook, let's take a second and do a mailbag. Ryan McCulloch writes to us and says... Hey, guys, really digging the podcast? Have you pondered doing an episode on Pigpen? He seems to be the great lost member with not a ton of info out there about him. He's also my favorite member. Keep up the awesome work. Well, Ryan, uh, it's actually a tremendous idea to do an episode about Pigpen, and I certainly would love to do that. As a matter of fact, now's a great time to talk about 
Pigpen's contributions in the context of Europe 72 and Skullfuck because Europe 72 really is Pigpen's last ride. Yeah, man. You know, it was the last time he went out on a major tour with them and had centerpiece songs. And I love Pigpen, too. You know, when I first started getting into the dead, I'd go back to the early stuff and sometimes was kind of befuddled. You know, I couldn't quite wrap my head around this guy. Like, you know, sometimes he was pitchy and, you know, he seemed like... Uh, his songs, the blues songs, didn't entirely fit with my understanding of the dead at that point. But now some of my favorite Grateful Dead songs are Pigpen tunes. And he was just a riveting performer. He could sing Turn On Your Love Light to a couple in the audience and, you know, they'd get married or something <laughs> after the show. <laughs> like No one could resist the power of the Pigpen rap. So let's talk about Skullfuck. I mean, first of all, the album cover is amazing. Uh, it was created by Elton Kelly and Stanley Mouse based on an illustration from the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Uh, you know, when I was a little kid, my mom had that. I used to just stare at the cover for hours. You know, I was a morbid kid obsessed with skeletons and horror movies and stuff. We've talked about that before. Uh, and then, of course, there's the album title, which, you know, officially it's called The Grateful Dead, but it's referred to as Skull and Roses or Skullfuck, which was the name they wanted. <laughs> you know, for some reason, Warner Brothers wasn't cool with that. But, you know, this has a great pig pen tune on it big boss man which is a luther dixon cover um elvis presley did it too but i just absolutely love pig pen's rendition here the great thing about pig pen is that in a practically sexless band like pig pen is the sweaty crotch <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's the blues guy yeah, man he definitely brought the swagger you know pig pen came by the blues honestly it His, is Dad was a legendary Bay Area rhythm and blues DJ, and a lot of the other members of the band actually came up listening mm -hmm. to those programs and hearing all that great black music that would in turn influence the rock and roll that they were making. So Pigpen was a part of that continuum for sure. Yeah. And I think that authority is definitely what sells it. I think it's remarkable to Kevin's point about Pigpen. Every autobiography you read by Grateful Dead band members will make a point of mentioning the fact that uh, Pigpen and Janis Joplin had some of the loudest sex ever had. <laughs> <laughs> at, their, at their house in the heat. Yeah, apparently the lyric, did you ever waken to the sound of street cats making love in <laughs> Looks Like Rain, is a reference. <laughs> I didn't know that. You know, all of which is to say, Pigpen was enormously important to the development of the Grateful Dead. And there are overdubs on these records, even though they're live records. And some of that is to sort of fill in the holes where Pigpen would go because he just was not particularly audible or wasn't playing a lot. So let's talk about Skullfuck or Skull and Roses. The reason we're including it in this season, even though it's a live album, is because it's an official Grateful Dead release and it also introduced new repertoire. I'm thinking in particular of that Grateful Dead Warhorse Bertha, <laughs> which we've all seen on plenty of set lists, but it makes its very first appearance here on an officially sanctioned live release, not a studio album. It's a lovely song. Is it? Oh, here we go. <laughs> well, it's easy to damn first set dead songs with faint praise, right? Because you hear them a lot. The band doesn't take a lot of chances on it. Right. Songs like Bertha or Brown Eyed Women, I mean, those are songs that for me are just so essential to 
the fabric of the dead songwriting. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because these are all sort of characters and stories. And Kevin, it sounds like you have a slightly <laughs> different opinion, though. Uh, no, actually, Bertha is a great song. Yeah. It, it is. It is so ubiquitous, though. I can't tell you like how many times in getting acquainted with the dead, I never really made it past Bertha. Yeah, I get you. And yeah. so I had a weird reaction listening to Skullfuck, uh, you know, and prepping for this, where I couldn't relate to it at all. Yeah, it just comes across as a placeholder. It's like hearing the Stones, honky tonk women, or something. You hear it for the millionth time, and you're like, "Hey, it's the Stones, honky tonk women." Mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I am hearing this music, <laughs> but it still remains one of their greatest songs. And I think you know, between that and introducing Warfrat on this. Album, Oh, yeah. So it's kind of fun to try to listen to a song like Bertha for the first time, even though it's probably the millionth time. So that's pretty tasty. Uh, another one that's really interesting to me, another Grateful Dead warhorse, is playing in the band. And the crazy thing about the Skullfuck version is it doesn't have the jam. Even weirder, mm -hmm. right. when it was recorded for an official studio album, not Grateful Dead album, for Bob Weir's Ace, it does have a really interesting jam. And Jonathan Hart from Broke Down Podcast was on our last episode uh, talking about how that little section is probably the finest on record, on studio record jamming the dead ever did. I'm inclined to agree, but it's just hilarious that on a live album where you would think that type of musical excursion would take place, it's really just a bunt. You know, they're in and out. You and I disagree on, on this placement of the other one directly after playing in the band. 
where in this sort of normalish album you have this like weird out there other one and it, I mean and to be it, fair any version of the other one is probably going to get weird but yes. it it does seem you're right I actually agree with you on this record this happens to be one of the more uh, psychedelicized other ones you know from this period and they go pretty far out I mean they bend that sucker in some pretty weird shapes for sure yeah yeah but sandwiched between a uh, normal jamless playing in the band and me and my uncle <laughs> right right <laughs> Kind of a head scratcher. And they had this habit, too. Um, I think once they got out of the 60s, their live, you know, there's that Dead Set live album that comes out later in the 70s, which is very mm-hmm. similar to this in that there's oh yeah all the versions are just sort of basic, you know, nothing fancy, um, just get in, yeah. get out. Um, but but what, what I think does come through here, and it's a thing that the band hasn't really had a chance to showcase on their live records yet, is how their playing serves the song. Totally. Um, I think that comes out on me and Bobby McGee. It obviously comes out on Warfrat, which is just handled so well and so carefully. And here. a lot of the work that they had put in previously trying to be Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I mean, they, they yeah. retained some of that. I think they would lose it again at uh, various points in their career, but uh, here they're very tight. I do want to talk about Warfrat, so let's get into that. I mean, what an amazing song. You know, talk about a scene in a setting. Like, I've walked around the docks in San Francisco. Granted, it wasn't the 60s or the 70s, but mm-hmm. you, know, you can still kind of get a feel for that. And, you know, there's homeless people, of course, and you know, the impression that Hunter is able to give of somebody who just wants to share these basic aspects of their life story to a stranger, it's quite powerful, quite moving. Yeah. And I know that Garcia actually had an affinity for street people. He loved uh, interacting with anyone with a good story, <laughs> an interesting story, a weird angle on something. And I just think Warfrat is a testament to Robert Hunter's ability to understand the mindset of the musician who is going to give life to that song in performance. And it's just a wonderful thing because it shows how well Hunter understood Jerry Garcia, his interests in Peccadillo. Yeah. You know, Warfrat and Mission in the Rain oh, are probably yeah. the two Hunter mm-hmm. songs that for me best, you know, are just, they are for me sort of like interwoven with San Francisco. There's no separating mm-hmm. them. Um, and they're both songs that have similar themes around this idea of like, people who don't know each other trying to reach out in some clumsy way and seeking reassurance. And, and with Warfrat too, you know, there's the sailor yeah. motif and have they been true and the darkness in Warfrat, that moment where the song changes at the end and the flyaway sort rain. of weird, like evil gospel stretch mm-hmm. is just so powerful. I'll get up and fly away. Is he an angel getting his just desserts after a lifetime of hardship or is he some sort of wrathful deity taking his revenge yeah. for the yeah, lifetime yeah. of hardship. <laughs> it's unclear. <laughs> and, you know, in as much as Bertha and playing in the band are maybe underdeveloped on Skull and Roses, I think that Warfrat is pretty well realized. This version of it, maybe, for me at least, is the best version of it. If you put this on, you're there. Yeah. It's like proto-virtual reality. <laughs> yeah, all you need is a pair of headphones.
So the band was in transition in 1971 when Skullfuck came out, but by Europe 72, they had turned a corner, and I think a lot of that comes down to the arrival of Keith and Donna Gottschalk. Keith in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy had a very fine musical intelligence that paired particularly well with Jerry Garcia, and it was... As though he arrived fully formed, he didn't take a lot of time to get up to speed. He was able to add value to the song-based material and also could really take it for a walk when the band wanted to get freaky. And the other members are pulling their weight too. Bob Weir in particular has completely developed as a player. <laughs> I mean, he's throwing his weird fractal shapes and you know, Billy's back there uh, kind of bending the backbeat into all kinds of uh, weird new swing formations. Just a top-notch lineup. My favorite dead lineup. I mean, they got this great new batch of songs and they're also still pretty weird. 
But the really crazy thing about Europe 72 is that they got the record company to pay for them and 43 staff members to <laughs> yeah. take a vacation yeah. Yeah. to Europe. Here's like a half a hundred people, tons of equipment, state-of-the-art recording gear. Yeah. Now go to this strange <laughs> land and pillage. It's like National Lampoon's Grateful Dead European vacation. <laughs> And, and it also, I think, the, it needs to be said that the resulting album of this and the resulting circumstances around this really resulted in Grateful Dead records. Mm-hmm. They realized they had to do stuff, mm-hmm. and, and, and they were trying to break free of the system. And So this was sort of like thumbing yeah. their nose at them, but they came out sort of I winners. can't imagine yeah. how uh, WB, after going through what they went through on the, all of the records that we've already talked about this <laughs> season, could be convinced... <laughs> To put up that much cash. I mean, it has to be the gross domestic product of at least one of the countries that they visited. I I read somewhere recently that I think the band years later finally admitted that they had probably treated Warner Brothers (laughs) much more poorly than the label had treated them. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and this album is frankly, you know, exhibit A of maybe why it was a mutually beneficial codependent relationship. Because this, this, this ends up being one of the sort of canon records. Oh, for sure. And it's clear they had a blast, even though they weren't touring in luxury. They end up in a chateau in uh, in France, hanging out with Magma. Magma. Right? That's yeah. The, that, is, that is the most amazing. <laughs> Prague as fuck. <laughs> yep. One incident in particular stands out. What happened was there was this kind of French D-bag that they got in a little argument with, the the crew did, and um, he poured some stuff into their diesel truck that wasn't supposed to go into a diesel truck. So, (laughs) you know, the motor seized up, and and that was that. The equipment didn't make it to the next show, but the dead did. So they got there, and Weir said there was a stage with no equipment, but lots of angry Frenchmen standing on it. They chased the dead all around the venue, The dead ducked out into the dressing rooms and tried to hide from the mob. They barricaded it with chairs. Weir said eventually they had to jump out the window and climb down a drain pipe 20 feet to the street below and skulk off into the moonless French night. (laughs) It's like some kind of cartoon. You know, the band was also doing like fairly real band things during this time, right? So Mickey Hart's dad had just ripped the band off and so he's gone and they're Mm -hmm. figuring out their sound with one drummer and, and, and two new musicians. They fire their manager on tour in <laughs> yeah. Europe, right? I, th- I think over the dispute with maybe that French promoter. Yeah. And so there's all this sort of like very real stuff happening outside of the three and a half hours they're spending on stage every night. And mm-hmm. they're still going up on stage and doing and all this. And if you this. talk to any of them, I mean, they all say that they had the best fucking time. Uh, Mountain Girl yeah. talked about it. You know, it's like the most fun you can have with 43 of your closest friends cramped on a bus <laughs> party. But, you know, it was freezing cold in England. They played a gig where their hands were barely moving across the fretboard because it was so cold. But, hey, this is also where Elvis Costello gets on the bus. Uh, yes. Well, and how could you not, like, if you're a musician in, in England or Europe at that time? Yeah, it was catnip to those limeys. Yeah. And in Northern Europe, it was a lot of... American GIs that would come check out the show, catch a band from home. In addition to the deeply confused local college population, they would kind of just stand there and clap politely. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff, yeah. But for the dead, that's also weird because, you know, they're used to playing those San Francisco ballrooms where people are literally copulating on the floor on acid (laughs) and pranksters, you know, the whole nine yards. But they really did give it their all on the entire European tour. And the selections that appear on the official Europe 72 release 
you know, they're pretty special. I remember hearing that in the background when I was a little kid. I've talked about this on the show before. You know, I would look at that album cover and my dad would roll joints in it. You know, family times. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just got some great takes, some wonderful versions of staple songs. Yeah, and what's fascinating to me about the actual release, not all the shows, is that this is still essentially like an ad for the band. This is like... Calling card. Yeah, a calling card. And on Europe 72, they really defined their set list and and who they were as a band for the rest of their career. Yeah, it's a template. I mean, you look down this, like, Cumberland Blues, He's Gone, One More Saturday Night, Jack Straw, The China Cat Run, Brown Eyed Woman, Sugar Magnolia, Mr. Charlie's, and like... Yeah, I mean, the only thing that's missing is, like, everything that's on the Garcia solo album, which is why we talked about it, you know? Yes. Yeah, deal. and Yeah. Yeah, it's all mostly there, and you're going to see at least half of this show up in just about every show. Right. And so my question is, did they just think that this material was that good? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of folks, this version of The Grateful Dead is their favorite version of The Dead, and I'm one of them, Uh, you know. I think the reason is because they had a wonderful batch of songs and they played them well. I have to agree. I think they knew it, though. I think they were just like, yep, that's it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of great songs still to come, a whole batch of Mm -hmm. Bobby tunes like Estimated Profit and a lot of really wonderful group collaborations like the Help on the Way, Slipknot Cycle. It's just but there's something special about these songs for sure. But at the time, it was actually pretty daring to introduce so many new songs in live concert performance. Like, people didn't know this material. They were hearing it for the first time. Daring is the right word, because that's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a normal yeah. band would record their new batch of songs for a new studio album and then go break yep. them in a foreign market. <laughs> <laughs> but not the good old Grateful Dead. Well, so not only is the band coming in, into focus in a sense for us looking back you know we're starting to feel like wow this is really the dead now it's an incredibly prolific year for them right like the famous Veneta show that comes up in uh, August of this year which has a a definitive China writer yeah, the whole show's definitive yeah um, there's also an interesting thing that's starting to happen too you know on Skullfuck I think is the first time they put out basically a call saying Hey, are you are you into this? Like, let us know who you are. Send us your name yeah, and address, yeah. and we'll add you to a list. Yeah, cultivating deadheads. Yeah, so the formal business is kicking in, too. Mm-hmm. And then this, to me, is when the artwork starts to really come into yeah. its own a little bit, yeah. too. You know, you have the Bertha Skullfuck mm-hmm. cover, um, and that character goes, you know, goes on to be known as, as Bertha. And then Europe 72 is just so stark. It's just yeah. white, right? You open the gatefold, and it's just very little in there but you have of course the famous you know the guy on the cover yeah the ice cream idiot (laughs) and it's really when you start to get into a sense of like there were maybe licensing and other merchandising opportunities available (laughs) continuing to pay dividends in fact Mm -hmm. you know i wonder maybe the gatefold of europe 72 is white to represent the fact that the band was getting into cocaine (laughs) yes (laughs) although i don't think it was really a big thing on europe 72 because acid is way easier to move across borders i think billy said he abstained from coke during the entire year of 72 tour Good for him wasn't ace made of pure cocaine <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at the wikipedia guys and it just says well i got the vinyl let me go break off a chunk yeah <laughs> anyway 
Europe 72 for me comes down to the songs, and there's a lot of great ones here. It really does display the majesty of the Garcia-Hunter partnership that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. And Ramble on Rose, in particular, is one of my favorites. And it's also a favorite of mine to play, and I was thinking about recording my version of it at some point. If it turns out okay, maybe we'll debut it here on DTM, I don't know, or I'll bury it in the backyard. But Ramble on Rose... Such a great song. So many great lines that speak to me as an old school gothic literature and horror buff like Mr. Garcia. Just like Mary Shelley. Yeah. (laughs) Just like Frankenstein. Just like Jack the Ripper. Let's just check it out.
you did a poll of how to introduce the dead to someone who has no idea what they're in for, probably the sort of the twin-headed uh, monster there is going to be American Beauty in Europe 72, yeah. I think. Yeah, that could be um, the case. And for good reason, I suppose, right? I mean, sometimes I, yeah. I bristle against the basic as well. It's like, oh, you guys all like Led Zeppelin 4, huh? Well, I'm a physical graffiti man. <laughs> good news, I don't. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll be talking about that and your love of, uh, excuse me. Uh, do not spoil the next podcast series, Casey. <laughs> Don't do it. Come on. Ed's doors issue is well known. <laughs> so stay tuned for the Chunky Glasses podcast series, Eduardo Hates. Yeah. <laughs> but the important thing is we can actually agree on something. <laughs> yes. For the first time. And that is that Europe 72 is a pinnacle Grateful Dead release. There wouldn't actually even be a Dead to Me podcast if it wasn't for Europe 72, because this was the album that kind of opened the gates for me. Uh, it had a lot of what I loved yeah. in music in general and also about the Grateful Dead in particular. And that is the countrified chicken picking, the cosmic terror jams, the woeful balladry, and of course, the turn on the dime jazz fusion, because with Keith in the band, Jerry is on another level. Phil has really honed his aptitudes. Bobby is firing on all cylinders. And Billy really swings like a motherfucker. In a way, it's just this weird translation of like their previous selves. And really, people got off to it, man. Yeah, I mean, it really helps to have such great songs. And yeah. getting back to that realm, think about Brown Eyed Women. You know, for me, depending on the day, that's my favorite Grateful Dead song. Of course, ask me tomorrow and you might have a different answer. But again, this is one of those dead records where we could play the entire thing and then we wouldn't even have time to jibber jabber. But I want to go out on a high note. So let's hear some brown eyed women and we will catch you on the other side of set break.
That's it for Set Break Part 2. Dead to Me will be back fairly soon with brand new episodes covering the remainder of the Grateful Dead studio albums. In the meantime, catch us online at deadtomepod.com, socials at deadtomepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hell. See you next time.